The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You know, the unfortunate reality is those points of view are becoming increasingly accepted by an increasingly large set of Americans who, again, are, are not your, you know, grandparents violent extremists. Uh, they, they are they are the average American who is, is suddenly willing to engage with the idea that there are people in this country who are worthy targets for violence merely because of who they are, what their identity is, and what they believe. And I think that should be, you know, extremely concerning uh, for, you know, everyone. I'm Gia Kokotakis, intern at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 7th, 2023. In the last year, the ADL and GLAAD tracked at least 356 incidents of anti-LGBTQ hate and extremism in the U.S. This marks an alarming rise over the past two years of anti-LGBTQ sentiment and violence. 49% of all incidents were perpetrated by individuals associated with extremist groups. This seems to point toward a much larger recent focus on the LGBTQ community by far-right extremists. I sat down with Megan Conroy, a research fellow at the Digital Forensic Research Lab who leads its domestic extremism research portfolio, and John Lewis, a research fellow at George Washington University's program on extremism. Both John and Megan have done significant research on far-right extremist groups and ideologies, as well as their intersections with anti-LGBTQ violence. We discussed the role far-right extremist groups previously played in anti-LGBTQ violence, what may have caused the spike in violence against the queer community, and how the extremist groups committing these acts of violence differ from our traditional conception of the far-right. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 7th, not your grandparents' far-right extremists. So to begin, what role have far-right extremist groups previously played in anti-LGBTQ violence? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, first of all, thank you for having us. Uh, We're really happy to be here. I think when you look at the history of far-right extremist groups in the U.S., there's obviously always been that undercurrent of hate against the other. A lot of the groups we saw in the 70s and the 80s especially really leaned into that in-group versus out-group mentality. Um, Anyone who did not fit into that very narrow interpretation of that in-group was was placed into that into that out-group of people who were somehow less, uh, somehow de- dehumanized and, and legitimate targets for violence. I think when we look at the history of many of those white supremacists and, and other far-right groups in the United States, there has, of course, always been that thread of anti-LGBTQ sentiment. I think, you know, when you look at things like the Unite the Right rally, you see them alternating between chanting, uh, Jews will not replace us, and yelling homophobic slurs at counter-protesters. I think, though, many of the most common themes we've seen historically in that in-group, out-group mentality from the white supremacist space especially has been used against minority groups, Jews, Muslims, um, you know, individuals who were very frequent targets of hate, of violence. And I think that what you saw really around the Unite the Right rally as, as a, a really useful highlight for that transition to some extent was the resurgence and emboldening of the, the American far right uh, back into the, the mainstream. And so I think really when, when you look at it since 2016, since 2017, and I think as, as we'll, I'm sure talk about a lot here, there will be this marked uptick in anti-LGBTQ sentiment and 
the mainstreaming of a lot of these anti-LGBTQ narratives, where we've seen both organized groups like the Proud Boys, as well as this really disorganized milieu of really online movements and ecosystems that we've seen, unfortunately, time and time again, uh, inspire this, this loose network of violent extremists to mobilize offline in response to these calls to action from influencers, grifters, and, and even politicians. Thank you, John. Megan, do you have anything to add on that? Absolutely. And thank you so much for, for having us today. Uh, just bouncing off of, of what John said, these people that we're talking about here, they are reactionaries in their worldview. So they believe that power in America is very much a zero-sum game. So in their view, for a marginalized group to gain any type of power is in their view to forfeit some of their own power. And that fear, that anger that results it mobilizes people and whether it mobilizes them to the polls or it mobilizes them to an LGBTQ um, protest, it gets people going and it gets people to show up. And it's a great strategy if you're trying to win an election, um, as, as UKIP showed us with Brexit and shortly thereafter, Trump showed us again. When it comes to these, these people who buy into a reactionary worldview, just pick an out group, like, like John said, whether it's the LGBTQ community immigrants, Jewish people, feminists, Muslims, Black Lives Matter, quote unquote Antifa, women, truly pick a group, any marginalized group, and the far right has probably targeted it in some capacity. And it just so happens that the LGBTQ community is a perceived out group that multiple groups and movements with kind of these different founding principles or organizational doctrines, they are happy to kind of coalesce around anti-LGBTQ movement and anti-LGBTQ rhetoric. And I think a, a lot of that is centered around the fact that the anti-LGBTQ narratives are focused on protecting children from grooming or from harm or from whatever ills that people are accusing the LGBTQ community of, of being responsible for. So Protecting children is a really low barrier for entry for people to uptake these conspiracy theories and these extreme belief systems because at face value, who wouldn't want to protect kids, right? So obviously, we know that these arguments are deeply insidious and not at all rooted in fact, but it's a really appealing narrative from a recruitment standpoint. And we've seen just how effective it is in getting everyday people to you know, espouse extreme worldviews. Thank you, Megan. So now that we've covered the far right more broadly and the role that they historically and also more recently have played in anti-LGBTQ plus violence and demonstrations, I want to focus more specifically on the Proud Boys. The Proud Boys have been very active lately in cases of anti-LGBTQ plus protests, intimidation, and even violence. So before we cover the most recent situations, what role have they played in anti-LGBTQ plus violence in the past history of their organization? Sure. So when you look at the history and the evolution of the Proud Boys, I think you can really trace them on that same timeline that we just talked about from the Unite the Right rally all the way through the 2020 election, the events of January 6th up through these recent trends that, that Megan just, just laid out here. I think when you look at the early years of the Proud Boys, they really sought to frame themselves as the, the violent tip of the right-wing spear, being you know ad hoc security at, at political rallies, uh, fighting with counter-protesters, traveling to New York City, to Portland, to Seattle, to seek out physical confrontation with individuals that they saw as the outgroup. Uh, in, you know, in, in, in the early years, they were really hyper-focused on that perceived threat of cultural Marxism, of Antifa, and I think most, most broadly, this, this shadowy imagined threat of, of this kind of leftist globalist coalition that, that they thought were, were trying to target uh, then, then President Trump. And when you really look at the actions of the group and its members uh, in you know, 2019, 2020, in the buildup to January 6th, you can really see how they followed that through line 
of that ideology straight to the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Um, when you look at their, you know, the conspiracy, which, you know, several of their leaders were recently convicted for, that that conspiracy to prevent the peaceful transfer of presidential power on January 6th to, to use violence or the threat of violence on the grounds of the Capitol, you really, you really have to look at that as, you know, in that period, the, the kind of central nexus of what Proud Boys mobilization was centered on. And then when you kind of move that forward past January 6th, right after many of their key members and leaders are arrested, they're facing this immense federal pressure, you really see them recede back down to the state and local level. And at that same time, that really does mirror what you see with the Stop the Steal Coalition writ large in that period, where it, it reinvents itself as more than just, you know, a coalition around this idea of a stolen election or, you know, a coalition around uh, anti-mask, anti-vax ideas, but a coalition that begins to target this, this rotating cast of enemies, um, you know, through many of the same influence mechanisms that we saw in the buildup to January 6th, right? Um, again, influencers, grifters, state and local elected officials, members of Congress even, you saw this rotating cast of enemies, right? Individuals who were the, the flavor of the month, the flavor of the week, you know, individuals who were going viral on, on Twitter or Facebook or another social media platform, proponents of critical race theory, local election officials, school boards, the FBI, and I think most, most prominently LGBTQ spaces, drag shows, drag queen story hours we saw a lot of in, in this post-January 6th period. There is... Uh, some really good coverage uh, of this this phenomena uh, done by uh, the folks over at ISD, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Uh, they, they had a report out uh, in this past year, which looked at, I think they, they cataloged around 203 anti-LGBTQ events in the U.S. In, in, in this kind of period. And they showed that, that 60 of those included Proud Boys chapters, Proud Boys members mobilizing at drag events. And of those 60, 39 of those were flagged as resulting in some kind of targeted hate speech or, or physical clash between those two sides. And I think that what it really shows, you know, I, I think obviously, you know, it's, it's important to understand, uh, you know, the role of the Proud Boys as this organization. But I think it, it really is important to, to kind of make, make clear here that the Proud Boys are the followers, right? They're, they're not the leaders. They're not, they're not the ideologues. As we've seen throughout their, their lifespan, they've really just wanted to, to fit in with, with this right-wing movement. They, they, they've wanted to feel like they are part of this ecosystem. And so we've seen them mirror the, the changing threads, the changing narratives that, that the right-wing movement more broadly has picked up and engaged with as they try to remain relevant, mobilize the local level, and continue to try and, again, ingratiate themselves with the mainstream American right today, which again, as, as we've seen time and time again, has increasingly been hyper fixated on these anti-LGBTQ narratives and conspiracies. Great. Thank you. Megan, do you have any thoughts on this? Absolutely. I think John hit the nail on the head. And just to elaborate, the Proud Boys have undeniably contributed to anti-LGBTQ rhetoric and mobilization in recent years. My team at the DFR lab, we do a lot of monitoring of anti-LGBTQ rhetoric and demonstrations, so both the online and the offline of this particular phenomenon. And the Proud Boys do pop up once in a while. It would be remiss to say otherwise. But I think the numbers that John just shared really demonstrate the fact that we should not overstate the Proud Boys' influence on anti-LGBTQ action or even the broader right-wing extremist landscape. Exactly to John's point, these guys just want to be relevant. They will do anything to stay relevant. Um, and in this particular context, that means grasping onto what some of us refer to on my team as uh, kind of the uproar du jour. You know, it's, it's a joking term. And of course, we know that none of this is a joke because it results in real world harm. But that term kind of does capture the fact that there is this rotating cast of enemies, to John's point, and an ever-growing list of topics or issues that these folks choose to be fired up about on a given day. Um, and with regards to the Proud Boys, we've we've seen them, you know, pair up with 
Moms for Liberty and and some of these other groups show up at school boards. They're not really passionate about a particular topic. It's just kind of the topic that suits them um, and and suits their unrelenting desire to seem relevant and cool and like that they are the thought leaders in the broader far right. Thank you, Megan. So now that we're kind of getting a clearer picture of the fact that the Proud Boys are not just individually contributing to this spike in participation in anti-LGBTQ plus demonstrations, but this is something that we're seeing more broadly within the far right and within the violent far right. So what may have contributed to this spike that we are witnessing currently in extremist groups' participation in these anti-LGBTQ plus demonstrations and acts of violence? Which kinds of groups are we talking about? This is such a great question because I think it will allow us to paint a picture of how information spreads today. And it's very much an ecosystem approach. And in the case of anti-LGBTQ rhetoric, of course, there's been an undeniable uptick in in recent years. And it, it doesn't just come from extremist groups. This particular brand of hate and the way that we have seen it, you know, just an absolute onslaught of anti-LGBTQ conspiracy theories and legislation and offline mobilization, whether it be in the form of protests, rallies, whatever, it's a really compelling case study in the way that these narratives become salient and become palatable at every level of society. It's not just extremist groups. Uh, Some examples that come to mind are back in March of 2022, Fox News had a segment um, where they were talking about public schools being quote unquote grooming centers where they refer to the term sexual brainwashing as being underway. A month later, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted that Democrats are the party of killing babies, grooming and transitioning children, and pro-pedophile politics. And that tweet is still up, by the way. So of course, it's not really a surprise that a lot of people are feeling emboldened and empowered to take action against the LGBTQ community because they're hearing it from every trusted voice, um, everyone that they look up to, whether it be, yeah, a cable news talking head or a sitting member of Congress. And what we've seen, and especially in the last, you know, 18 to 24 months is kind of the, the variations in the ways that this is manifesting in offline action, not just people saying horrible things on the internet and making threats on the internet and spreading conspiracy theories online, but we're seeing everything from, you know, like five to eight dudes in khakis waving swastika flags outside of a children's drag reading hour to extremist groups like Moms for Liberty, which I mentioned earlier, hosting these giant events with presidential candidates as featured speakers. So again, this is just, it's salient at every level of society. And and there's a reason that SPLC designated groups like Moms for Liberty and these so-called parents' rights groups as extremist groups. So when we talk about quote unquote, extremist groups taking action against the LGBTQ community, I think it's very natural for people to picture the groups that we talk about in the context of January 6th, right? Your Oath Keepers, your Proud Boys, your guys in like tactical gear, pretty organized, like former military or trying to look like they're military. Like people, I think, hear the term extremist and think violent extremist. And That's not just what we're talking about here. Of course, those people have been active at anti-LGBTQ demonstrations and and partaking in the rhetoric that we're seeing and hearing. But we're also talking about this mass mobilization of this so-called parents' rights movement, um, which I want to be clear, the SPLC has much more aptly characterized as the anti-student inclusion movement. Um, Let's, you know, not let these, these folks call themselves whatever they want to call themselves. And this movement is they're using kids and schools as a vehicle for whatever they've decided is the gravest threat to their family or their country that month or that day. And we, we saw these groups really get going during the COVID-19 mask mandates and, and vaccine mandates. Um, you know, Moms for Liberty was just founded in 2021. And look at how big they've gotten and how kind of mainstream a lot of their talking points have become and how effective they've been, quite frankly. And um We've seen them, you know, take charge against, you know, various books and curricula um, that mention gender or race in a way that the parents' rights movement, again, quote unquote, parents' rights movement deems, you know, unsavory or unacceptable. 
And these groups are so active both on and offline. You know, we're seeing them operate freely on social media, um, on, on very mainstream platforms that, ev- you know, not just the fringe platforms or the alt tech platforms. Um, these people are protesting, they're showing up at school board meetings, and they are looping in groups like the Proud Boys to intimidate people. And they're so insidious because, like I said earlier, they don't fit neatly into what most people picture when they hear the term extremist group. Thank you, Megan. John, do you have anything to add on the subject? Yeah, I would just, I mean, obviously, everything Megan said is is really where the threat is coming from at this point. And I, th- I think that is really what, what's important to take away more than anything when we talk about the state of this threat today. Um, I think that, again, uh, from you know, the work Megan and I have done uh, in, in recent years, you know, I think we, we have seen, um, you know, because of the, the nature of the, the, the terrorism space, especially the, the jihadist or the foreign terrorist organization set up and, and every, everything else, there has been this fixation, whether it's from researchers, from the media, on groups, on, on these organized hierarchical groups, you know, with a, a leader and a membership list uh, and, you know, a very easy, you know, chart that you can make and throw up on an infographic on, on a cable news show. Um, and again, you know, it's, it's because that's what people understand, right? And it's, it's easier to understand and conceptualize when you're describing a group like the Proud Boys, a group like the Oath Keepers, than talking about a coalition like what was at the U.S. Capitol, you know, the, 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 the mass of the mob, right, which, which we saw, you know, many of the people there who did violence were not members of the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers or anything that we would conventionally ascribe to be membership in an organized domestic violent extremist group. And again, you know, I think that that really does speak to, you know, a lot of the challenges that, you know, I think we'll also talk about a bit here in countering this threat, right? Because when you look at how the U.S. government has has typically understood, assessed, responded to the threat of you know, domestic violent extremism, of, of hate groups, of, of anti-LGBTQ violence, it has generally been around that group-centric understanding, right? Even though you can't designate a domestic group, even though you can't, there, there's no mechanism to make membership in a group illegal, the, the combination of the, the group and the ideology has generally been how many, you know, in the space and the government have tried to make this fit into a domestic violent extremism box. And I think that for, for all the reasons Megan just talked about, this is one of the many kind of facets of, of this problem set that we look at that simply doesn't really fit into that, into that space. You know, the, the threat that members of this community face is no different, whether it's 10 Proud Boys or, you know, 10 lone actors who are in six different telegram groups and three different signal spaces who don't know any, who don't know each other, but who are happy to, you know, bring semi-automatic weapons to a library. And I think really it comes down to the mainstreaming, which, which Megan, Megan laid out really, really clearly here, which is that many of these ideas, these narratives, these conspiracies don't require you to, you know, be a militia member who's going into the woods, uh, you know, to, to drink beer and complain about the government. Um, you, don't, you don't need to get faxed, um, you know, a, a conspiratorial kind of outline of, of, you know, globalists and the threat they pose. Um, you just open Twitter, right? You open Facebook, you go on social media, um, you talk to your neighbors. And I think that this mainstreaming is, is really one of the central pieces of this challenge that, that, that we're looking at here today. Thank you, John. Now that we have a better understanding of this fluidity factor in the dynamic between uh, the far right, the mainstream, and growing anti-LGBTQ plus sentiment, violence, demonstrations, what does this uptick in anti-LGBTQ plus activity mean for the far right more broadly and how we approach and conceptualize the far right? Yeah, I'll, I'll start very briefly here just to kind of continue on what we were just speaking about when we're talking about how these narratives kind of come, come into play. 
I think when when we're talking about these spaces, um, you know, whether it's the online spaces or, or the, the kind of offline mobilization, what you're really seeing is a grievance-based network. You know, a lot of the folks that, that you see mobilizing offline don't need to be organized, they don't need to be members of these groups. They just need to have a target, you know, look at the Telegram group, see where the LGBTQ uh, event, where the Pride Parade is going to be, and they just need to go show up, right? And and more often than not, there will be little to no consequences for that action. Um, you know, they, they may be told by law enforcement that they can only go, you know, so close to the entrance of the, the library with their firearm, um, you know, that they, they may have to stand in front of unarmed counter-protesters, um, you know, they, they may fear getting doxxed by journalists, but really, you know, they, they can largely act with impunity. And again, you know, I think, you know, to keep, to keep kind of tracing that thread back to that, that timeline of, of the United the Right rally, we have seen and continue to see an increasingly emboldened far right, one that feels comfortable, you know, going to a random pride parade in Idaho, right? Um, putting 31 guys in, in a U-Haul uh, and then, you know, showing up allegedly with the intent to commit a violent riot against individuals, you know, merely for having the audacity to take part in a pride parade, right? And I think that when you look at the evolution of the anti-LGBTQ narratives in the past couple of years, when you look at the extent to which extremists across that ideological spectrum, from the, the kind of more mainstream spaces that, that Megan talked about, to the white supremacists, uh, even some of the anti-government, and obviously, you know, kind of everyone in between, has seen this as a potent radicalizing factor, right? They know that it is, you know, going to be far easier to attract adherence to their cause when you have, you know, a, a significant subset of Americans who, even if they don't consider themselves to be extremists, let alone violent extremists, share the ideas of what this violent extremist group is saying, right? When, when you have neo-Nazis showing up to a drag show and using the exact same rhetoric as you're seeing on mainstream news shows, uh, the exact same rhetoric that's coming out of the mouths of members of Congress, that is always going to increase the number of individuals who are going to be receptive to that idea, to that argument. And so, you know, look, I think when you when you look at the, the the breadth and the scope of the the American violent far right, you know, especially since January six, I think it's it, it's largely been been consistent in this trend that we're talking about in terms of you know the the disorganized nature, uh, the, the kind of varied threat that we're talking about, whether it's anti-Semitism, uh, white supremacy, anti-LGBTQ sentiment. But I think really what this does is just add one more threat vector, right? Add Another handful of events that, you know, public events where, you you know, people who go there have to worry about a random act of violence, a random mass shooting being targeted uh, simply for who they are, what they believe, what they think. And, you know, again, as, as, as we know, right, from terrorism, violent extremism, that's the point, right? You know, you can't harden every public event, every parade. You know, the, the goal of this ideology of, of these narratives is to discourage, you know, individuals in this community uh, to, to force them to live in fear. And I think that what we're seeing is an increasingly broad set of individuals in these spaces uh, on the far right who see that as a, a goal and, and are willing to not just talk about it, but, but mobilize offline, go in and engage in physical violence, engage in harassment and engage in hate speech against those individuals. Thank you, John. Megan, do you want to jump in on this thought? I, I think that something I, John and I, I think both have this shared experience where whenever folks ask us about kind of the 
domestic extremist landscape, you know, where it is, where it's going, we tend to point to a lawfare piece by Cynthia Miller Idris and Brian Hughes called Blurry Ideologies and Strange Coalitions. And it is about the evolving landscape of, of domestic extremism. And even though it was published back in like December of 2021, it holds up. And it really ultimately captures exactly what, what John was just talking about. And I think a through line that you, you may have picked up on in all of our answers so far is that what we're seeing is these broader groups and movements and ultimately this, this network of people at every level of society who are mobilizing around a narrative. And it's not necessarily like John said, like you don't need to be a card carrying member of a group. Like this is not your, you know, your grandparents extremist group anymore. These are just seemingly everyday people, but who are taking extreme worldviews and making them digestible to the masses. And that by the very virtue of that means that we're going to have a broader, more expansive extremist movement um, against the LGBTQ community. And ultimately, to our earlier points about this being a very much an ecosystem-wide thing, as long as people continue to mobilize around this narrative, around these conspiracy theories that are anti-LGBTQ in nature, they're going to continue mobilizing. They're going to continue kind of kind of collaborating and, and co-radicalizing together because they're just bouncing off each other. And we're going to continue to see events offline where, you know, just last weekend we saw gays against groomers and blood tribe at the same protest. And of course, gays against groomers put out, you know, a press release condemning the presence of blood tribe at the protest, but you have a group that kind of falls into the whole, this broader anti-LGBTQ, anti-quote-unquote grooming movement. And then you have straight up neo-Nazis who are both showing up to the same protest to protest the same thing. Um, whether they're thrilled with each other's presence or not, I really don't care uh, because they're both there to intimidate the LGBTQ community and the people who support them. And so this increasing collaborations between kind of unlikely groups or seemingly unlikely movements is just representative of kind of where we are in the domestic violent extremist or just domestic extremist landscape writ large right now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When we talk about these extremist offline events and demonstrations against the LGBTQ plus community. Are there any key situations or events that come to mind to you? What do these events show about the growing targeting of the queer community by far-right extremist groups, by far-right extremist individuals or ideologies? Yeah, this is a great question because I think, you know, between SPLC's report, you know, the data that ADL, ACLED, GLAD, a lot of entities are putting out some really incredible reporting and incredible analysis about both, you know, quantitative and qualitative analysis about the rise in anti-LGBTQ action and violence over the past yeah, 18 to 24 months, especially. And there is certainly no shortage of events to choose from. Um, and I think that's probably... The most depressing part is, is you know, my, my team at the DFR lab, this is what we do, right? We, we are responsible for identifying upcoming protests and counter-protests, rallies, whatever, um, and figuring out where they're going to be, how many people are likely to show up, the likelihood that anti-fascist or, you know, 
LGBTQ uh, allies and activists will will show up um, to counter those protests or counter the counter protests, and you know, of course, assess the likelihood that things could turn violent. And and ultimately, we're really busy. Like I said, there's no shortage of anti-LGBTQ rhetoric online um, or anti-LGBTQ mobilization offline for us to to monitor and track and analyze. But I will say a specific trend that that I, I mentioned previously, um, but I think is, is worth noting again, is the groups and movements who have seemed to um, have built their organizational doctrine or their founding principles around maybe a, targeting a different marginalized group. So we're seeing, for example, groups that their entire existence has largely revolved around targeting the Jewish community in America, for example, they're mobilizing against LGBTQ centric events. So we're seeing them at drag brunches and drag readings and pride parades. A specific example of that is just a few weeks ago, um, that group that I mentioned earlier, Blood Tribe, they protested the Toledo Love Fest, which was organized by Equality Toledo in Ohio. And then they made their way over to the Sylvania campus of the Jewish Federation of Greater Toledo. So Granted, that's a one-off um, as far as I'm aware, but these groups aren't necessarily just focusing their attention entirely on one marginalized group. The mobilizing against the LGBTQ community is something that a lot of groups, regardless of what their founding principles or their organizational doctrine or their stated objectives, it is something that an uncomfortable number of groups and movements have gotten behind. And that is something that we have noticed an increase of over time. Thank you, Megan. This year alone, 70 anti-LGBTQ plus laws have been enacted across the U.S. A Colorado Asian law was also recently struck down by the Supreme Court. John, what do you think is the relationship that might exist between these political developments and the escalating violence we've seen against the queer community, and as we've talked about, from a very broad swath of the far right and even pulling in some mainstream individuals? So I think this really does speak to several of the broad points that we've touched on throughout this podcast so far. I think when we think about how America, the American government has, has typically, you know, conceptualized Again, this, this threat of political violence, of, of terrorism, it is this inherent othering, right? Um, you know, when we talk about, especially in, the, in that post-9-11 landscape, what terrorism was. It was this, this small minority group of, of actors who, you know, were un-American, right? They, they hated us. They hated our freedoms. They, you know, hated us because of our democracy, because of baseball, because of apple pie, but they were this faraway group of other people who weren't us who wanted to come here to, to commit violence against us and our way of life. And I think what we've seen in you know, the, the, the past five, six, seven years is that conceptualization coming back to bite us in you know, really, really challenging ways because we're, we're now faced with you know, this, this massive spike in those those very concepts of, of political violence, of hate crimes, of hate speech, again, as as, as Megan said earlier, you know, we, we, you know, by every meaningful metric, and you know, the reporting that's done by ADL, GLAD, ACLED, SPLC, ISD, every every conceivable way you look at it, the threat is is as high as it's been in recent years. Uh, the the threat to minorities, to um, LGBTQ individuals, to, you know, members of the Jewish faith, Muslims, you know, everyone who is not part of that in-group is is at risk, right? And, and that, again, you know, when we talk about that mainstreaming, what you're seeing is the unfortunate reality that the ideas that, you know, gays against groomers, that, the, again, neo-Nazi movements like blood tribe, like the active clubs even are saying, aren't these, these fringe ideas anymore. The, the example we always go back to the, the great replacement theory, right? This, this deeply anti-Semitic white supremacist idea that, 
you know, Jews and, and globalists are, you know, conspiring um, with, with, you know, the Democrats and the left to replace the, the white population um, here. And, and, you know, similarly, you know, conspiracies in, in Europe say the same thing. And when you look, you know, 10, 15 years ago, that was a conspiracy that was, you know, relegated to the fringe forums, right? The, the, the kind of, you know, closed online spaces that, that neo-Nazis uh, sat in. And, you know, in the last year or two or three, even that, that is something that has, you know, been on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox news. That's been something that's been repeated as, as truth, as gospel by uh, members of Congress on, on the house and Senate floors. And I think that, you know, when, when you look at, you know, this, this recent spate of anti-LGBTQ legislation, these, these clear attempts, again, uh, under the guise of exactly what Megan talked about earlier, um, you know, framing it in language of, you know, protecting children, stopping grooming, uh, you know, stopping this, you know, sexual brainwash, you know, all these, these terms that are, are cloaked in the, the protection of those who cannot protect themselves. That clearly has a, a radicalizing effect. It's, it's going to be something, as we've seen, that incites violence. And again, it, it goes back to what we talked about you know, at, at the very top when we look at the, the history of political violence and extremism in this country. It is inherently built upon this othering. It's, it's built upon language and rhetoric and ideas that dehumanize and cause that specific outgroup to somehow be viewed as subhuman, as, as less than the in-group. And I think, you know, most kind of prevalently here, worthy, accepted targets for violence. And that gets to something, again, that, 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 that we've, we've touched on a couple times here already, it's that, that concept of, of the culture war, right? And again, you, you've seen, Megan talked about it. We, we've seen it with um, folks like Margie Taylor Greene, individuals who are promoting these concepts, again, of, of this, this us versus them, this, you know, if, if individuals don't agree with our viewpoints, it's because they are somehow un-American, they hate our point of view, they hate what we stand for, and they're trying to take our country away from us. They're trying to take it in a direction that we don't want to go. And that, that again, that, that is going to be a concept that is viewed as a call to arms. And again, to, to the point we touched on earlier in, in terms of what that mobilization looks like, it doesn't need to be, you know, the 31 Patriot front members, you know, falling out of a U-Haul just to be arrested uh, in, in, in Idaho. It, it can be lone actor violence. You know, when you look at the Club Q shooting in Colorado, uh, the Bratislava gay bar shooting in Slovakia, both in 2022, th those aren't individuals who are, again, card-carrying members of any organized movement. They are individuals who, you know, for their, their own ideological unique reasons in each of those cases, but, but lone actors who are motivated by hate, by anti-LGBTQ sentiment, who want to commit violence against individuals who they think are somehow less than them. And I think, you know, for, for all the reasons that, that we've been speaking about here, I think, you know, the unfortunate reality is th those points of view are becoming increasingly accepted by an increasingly large set of Americans who, again, are, are not your, you know, grandparents, violent extremists. Uh, they, they are, they are the average American who is, is suddenly willing to engage with the idea that there are people in this country who, are worthy targets for violence merely because of who they are, what their identity is, and what they believe. And I think that should be, you know, extremely concerning uh, for, you know, everyone. Ultimately, when conspiratorial beliefs about a marginalized group, in this case, the LGBTQ community, when those beliefs, when those narratives are given credence by legislators in the form of, you know, either passing anti-LGBTQ legislation or, you know, striking down laws that, that would provide that community with more rights um, or equal rights. When those beliefs are given credence by legislators 
and these trusted voices who have credibility and influence for whatever reason, whether they be cable news talking heads or social media influencers or podcasters or, of course, elected officials or presidential candidates, violent rhetoric against these outgroups essentially becomes totally normalized, if not seemingly state-sanctioned. So, of course, if politicians are telling you that, indeed, this group of people is a threat to you and all you hold dear and they do not deserve rights, you're probably going to be more likely to believe that narrative. And we have evidence for that. When I was on the select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol, my team was responsible for investigating the way that Trump's words were shared and echoed among his supporters on social media. And then we saw as some of those supporters then showed up at the Ellipse and then at the Capitol, ready to kill police officers, members of Congress, or even die themselves because Trump and the various influential voices who backed him were emphatic that this was the last chance to save the country. There, there's no longer this clear demarcation between extremist groups and the quote unquote political elite. They're saying the same things, which is exactly, which is exactly what John just pointed to. When you're hearing these narratives from every single turn, from every single person on every single, you know, whether you turn on the TV, open Twitter, you're talking to your neighbors, you're you're hearing the same things about the same groups of people, and that's causing real harm as a result. And all of this boils down to, I know we've talked a lot about in-group, out-group, and the us versus them kind of dichotomy, but ultimately... If extremism is the belief that your in-group cannot thrive or even survive while a certain out-group exists, then that means we have a jaw-dropping number of people in this country who hold extremist beliefs, because we have a lot of people who believe that the continued existence of the LGBTQ community is a threat to the survival of a certain subset of Americans, and we're seeing that now make its way into our state houses and our Supreme Courts. And that just further legitimizes it and further legitimizes extreme worldviews as ones that are not only legitimate, but like completely viable and if not preferable. Thank you, Megan. Now that we've gotten a better idea of the role of far-right extremists, the mainstream and other actors in purporting these really damaging beliefs about the LGBTQ community, what should we look for going forward? John, are there any patterns from these extremist groups, ideologies, individuals that may point toward future potential targets? Do you have any recommendations for both law enforcement and policymakers in regard to protecting the LGBTQ plus community from these acts of violence going forward? Sure. So, I think, you know, first and foremost, when we look at, again, the, the data that, that, that we've discussed here, the, the work that Megan and DFR Lab have done in, in, in tracking a, a lot of these incidents, I think, you know, there are obviously these, these clear patterns, right? You've seen, you know, these, these drag story hours, uh, you've seen pride parades, you've seen these, these advertised public gatherings that more often than not, become the targets for this online vitriol. And I think what, what we've seen time and time again is the identification of those events by these influencers and grifters and you know, these online personalities, right, who just like in the buildup to January 6th served as amplifiers, Right, we're you know taking you know these these instances of of this you know planned pride parade or you know this this planned LGBTQ event and blasting it out to hundreds of thousands of followers with the knowledge that by framing it as you know in in all the ways you talked about here as a threat to children as you know individuals who are trying to groom your kids that 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 would gain attention, that, that it would be picked up by uh, more and more individuals, would be blasted into these telegram groups, into these online spaces. And again, as, as we talked about time and time again here, it doesn't take a, a massive turnout. When, when we look at a lot of these events that we've seen 
these physical altercations, this violence, this harassment, this hate speech, more often than not, it is a small handful of individuals. Uh, you know, they're also typically, uh, you know, carrying banners with swastikas on them or carrying semi-automatic weapons, which, you know, really, as always, speaks to the, the potential for violence here. Um, you know, one of the one of the kind of points that one of our fellows, J.J. McNabb, uh, made in congressional testimony back in 2020, when we were talking about the Boogaloo movement, is this, you know, very basic idea <laughs> that I think is always important to, to flag repeatedly when we talk about these, these public gatherings, which is that anytime you have a, a set of individuals who are showing up to a public protest with firearms, that's going to greatly, drastically increase the likelihood of violence. And I think that when you look at prevention measures, that's really got to be where a lot of these conversations start. I think that, again, you know, going back to the, to the previous question of, you know, a lot of the legislation that's been introduced, a lot of the anti-LGBTQ legislation that we've seen, that does obviously create an inherent challenge when, when you're talking about the role of law enforcement here in these areas that, that are passing this, the, the, this very prohibitive legislation to be able to allow them to actually, you know, protect members of this community from potential violence. I think that unfortunately, you know, in, in a lot of the events that we've been discussing here, um, you know, a, a lot of the, the recent um, events that, that Megan was speaking about earlier, when you, when you look at the coverage of those events, what you're seeing is that it's not really law enforcement that is, you know, protecting it is it is local activists it's it's individuals who are standing on the other side of the the barricade of 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 the fence and standing between you know armed white supremacists who are you know chanting and threatening violence and the individuals who are are at risk and so you know i think that first and foremost you know i, I think um action robust action really that looks closer at, you know, hate crime enforcement, the prevention of mobilization by these armed groups. Um, you know, Mary McCord and, and ICAP over at Georgetown have done some incredible work uh, over the years looking at the fact that, you know, the reality is all 50 states have laws in their books that prevent armed illegal militias from, from mobilizing in public spaces. And, you know, the unfortunate reality is more often than not, those are not enforced. And so I think that, you know, before anything else, I think preventing individuals who are threatening violence from, from showing up to public spaces, to libraries, to pride parades, and carrying loaded firearms uh, in front of children would, would make those children that they are allegedly trying to save uh, safer. And again, that obviously does not solve this, this kind of broader societal issue that, that, that we kind of keep speaking about. Um, but if, if nothing else, it, it is a start. And, you know, look, I, I think when we, when we talk about the threat of violence, you know, we already kind of touched on this earlier, but I think, you know, again, the, the unfortunate reality is that when you look at the successful acts of violence, uh, political violence, mass violence in this country by the far right, the trend is lone actors, right? Um, you know, we talked about Club Q, obviously Bratislava and Slovakia. But, you know, when you look at Pittsburgh, El Poway, Pittsburgh, El Paso, Poway, Buffalo, and so many more, those really do highlight the, the inherent challenge. And even if you want to talk about law enforcement responses, you know, preventing a, a lone actor who has easy access to firearm firearms and a clear target in mind is, is incredibly challenging. And so I think that, you know, the reality is, look, you, you can't harden every pride parade, every library. Um, and so I think really, you know, far more robust action in terms of, you know, preventing that mobilization is, is a, a good start, even if it doesn't fix the whole problem. Thank you, John. Megan, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think I am just begging for people who are in positions of power who can actually make a difference to learn from past mistakes. I mean, of course, to John's point, and we, we can't go out and um, securitize every 
library or church that's having, you know, a drag based fundraiser or drag event. Um, we can't harden every pride event. It's just, it's, it's not realistic. And of course it's what kind of message does that send? But as I mentioned earlier, we do have, you know, there is precedent for people in positions of power and extremist groups and members of the American public singing the same tune about a particular grievance they have and mobilizing. And we saw that on January 6th. And as has been proven time and time again, the intelligence community and the you know law enforcement apparatus, there was it was not prepared for January 6th, even though the threats were being made very much in public spaces. Um, and, and, and January 6th was planned in plain sight. And while we have seen a shift where a lot of these extremists are and groups and movements are doing a lot of their, their planning and, and collaborating and, and, and whatever it is that they're talking about, that these are happening in more closed spaces, not just, you know, in tweets or, you know, on, on patriots.win or Reddit, you know, subreddits or, or discord channels or whatever it may be. It's pretty admittedly frustrating that we're not seeing the same energy that kind of came in the wake of January 6th, where it felt like there was this kind of newfound appreciation for, oh, the far right is in fact a threat. The far right does in fact pose a threat to marginalized groups, to democracy as we know it. And the example I, I point to most recently is in May. DHS claimed in a public advisory that there were no immediate or specific threats related to the 2024 election at this time. Um, And later, when a DHS official spoke to the press about that public advisory, they said that extremist use of quote-unquote existential or quote-unquote apocalyptic terms, um, and I quote, obviously would heighten our concern that individuals may act on that sense of existential threat. And I think I sent John actually like a very long text with a lot of expletives in it once I saw that because these extremists already are using that language. They will continue to use that language. The claims that the LGBTQ community is grooming children, the claims that every election that doesn't go the way a certain group of people wanted to go is somehow stolen, claims that like I see on TikTok that like Taylor Swift is doing satanic rituals while on stage on the Eras tour. This all boils down to the us versus them, or even one step further, good versus evil positioning. And it is fundamentally existential and it is fundamentally apocalyptic and also fundamentally strategic because it enables these groups of people, the perceived in-groups, um, who are not actually being oppressed in any meaningful interpretation of the word to position themselves as victims of some kind of oppression or, you know, existential or apocalyptic threat. Because when you are a victim, you can therefore justify any and all actions as actions of self-defense. And that includes violence. And that's why so much of the rhetoric we're seeing around the LGBTQ community is positioning them as the aggressors. These people who are, you know, they're pedophiles, they're grooming, they're targeting. These are very active terms that position them as the threat. And that allows people, you know, the other side to position themselves as victims who therefore have no choice but to defend themselves, right? Um, Of course, it's it's so easy for them to see it that way when they're using that strategic language and and that strategic positioning. And it is an age-old tactic, very effective. And it's concerning that we don't seem to be learning from our mistakes, um, at least at the at the government kind of, you know, the government level who it's part of their job to evaluate domestic extremism and the rhetoric that they're seeing online, the mobilization they're seeing offline. And, and they seem to be missing the forest for the trees here. And that is incredibly concerning um, and fundamentally at odds with the reality of the situation. Thank you, Megan. And Thank you both for coming on the Lawfare podcast today. That will wrap up our discussion. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for having us. Uh, This was a great chat. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, 
lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yen. As always, thank you for listening.